Inside Florida Politics, powered by Gannett. Hello, I'm Sarasota Herald Tribune political editor Zach Anderson, and I'm joined from Tallahassee by Gannett State Capitol reporter John Kennedy. Hey, John. Hello, Zach. And joining me from Pembroke Pines is Palm Beach Post politics editor Antonio Finns. Howdy, Antonio. How you guys doing? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, another big week uh, in, uh, in Florida and national politics. Joe Biden was inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States Wednesday, marking the end of the Trump era. We'll discuss how Biden's inauguration will reset Florida's relationship with the White House and what Trump's new life as a full-time Florida resident could look like. But first... I don't know what that music means. Antonio, you got a number for us today? I do. I am going to go with another precise number, 26,235. Hey, how about you, John? Jack, my number this week is 481. And it does figure into the inaugural news, but I'll, I'll tell you more about that later in the show. Right, a timely number here. And my number is 98. Remember those numbers, folks. Write them down. We'll tell you what they mean for Florida politics at the end of the show. Well, just two weeks ago, the U.S. Capitol was overrun by a pro-Trump mob. But on Wednesday, it served as the backdrop for President Biden's swearing-in ceremony. Florida's GOP leaders had a pretty cozy relationship with Trump's White House, but that should change with a Democrat at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Federal policies on things important to Floridians, such as offshore drilling and relations with Cuba, could also get a new look. John, what are some of the more immediate impacts you see on Florida from a Biden presidency? Well, what might be one of the most tangible things we could see is money, and uh, it's needed. Uh, Biden has pitched a $1.9 trillion relief package to Congress that includes $350 billion for state and local governments to help them out with their budgets, which have been you know, racked by the coronavirus and the economic fallout. We, we've talked a lot about the uh, $2, $2 billion budget hole that Florida is in for next year. And uh, that was after the state already propped up this year's budget with $5.8 billion in CARES Act funding from Congress. That was the, the first round of help approved in the early stages of the pandemic. So if the, uh, if the now Democratic-controlled Congress goes along with the uh, new Democratic president, some level of aid could be coming to the Republican-led legislature and Governor Ron DeSantis to sort of help cover next year's spending. Uh, then there's immigration and the, the new Biden administration. Uh, the, the president has called for a plan that could provide a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants in this country in as little as eight years. Uh, now, Florida has an estimated 775,000 undocumented residents. And, you know, that, that may be a low uh, estimate at that. But and, and many of these people are living on the margins of our society. So maybe they would have a chance anyway to kind of more fully integrate into Florida, which, of course, would have broad impact on our economy, culture and politics going forward. Um, Biden also is looking to tighten border security, but not with the wall that uh, was the centerpiece of President Trump's efforts. Uh, offshore oil drilling, uh, that looks even less likely to be brought up by the uh, Biden administration. It's uh, it's very unpopular in Florida, but the Trump White House would bring it up occasionally as sort of a trial balloon to sort of satisfy the oil industry. And uh, you remember in 2018, it gave then Governor Rick Scott 
uh, something to push back against the administration on and uh, gain a victory because uh, the the Trump White House decided not to uh, pursue any uh, offshore drilling near Florida. And uh, it, it made Scott look like a hero shortly before he announced his uh, what became his successful candidacy for the U.S. Senate. Uh, climate change is another thing where uh, it looks like the Biden administration is going to take it seriously. And uh, in this state where South Florida especially goes underwater whenever there's a full moon and uh, cities and counties have been trying to forge their own mitigation efforts against uh, rising water. Well, you know, maybe leaders of local governments will gain a funding ally in the in the Biden administration because so far they've gotten little from state government other than what was seen as a, you know, kind of a remarkable step by DeSantis once upon a time to at least acknowledge that climate change is an issue. And uh, that was a dramatic departure from his predecessor, Scott. So so those, those are a few of the big things. But uh, a new administration means a, a host of policy changes, and we're certain to see new guideposts in the world of uh, education, you know, police and race relations, business regulation, and uh, a lot more going forward that Republican leadership in this state can either embrace, uh, maybe try to water down the best they can, or uh, in some cases, I think we may see them try to outright defy it. But uh, we're in a unique spot, and uh, almost all Republican state government in Florida and uh, and almost all Democratic federal government right now. So uh, how those two uh, meld together is uh, kind of an unfolding story that we're going to be watching in coming months. John, it's interesting that you brought up money and that uh, Florida might benefit financially under the Biden administration because of his stimulus package, because it's <clears throat> something that Ron DeSantis liked to talk about a lot um, and, and brag about because of his close relationship with Trump that he was able to get more money for Florida for things like disaster relief after hurricanes or Everglades restoration. And I wonder, you know, how much credence, you know, there, there is to that, that, uh, you know, having somebody of, of like mind uh, in the White House, if you're a governor, helps you actually get money. You would think that, you know, that uh, the federal government would be fair to everyone and that, you know, that you wouldn't be punishing states that are, you know, different, uh, have a different leader than your political party, but I don't know if that's how it always worked. Uh, do, do you think that there uh, that DeSantis will have a harder time, um, you know, do, getting money out of the Biden administration for some of the things that are his priorities? Well, I, I guess it depends on what those priorities ultimately become. You know, I think I think the Biden administration is going to take a uh, you know favorable look at things that would involve the environment, uh, you know, anything related to climate change, which is sort of a you know, auxiliary of uh, the issue of the environment. Uh, so I think if DeSantis needed some more funding for, you know, Lake Okeechobee restoration, uh, any kind of uh, urban mitigation efforts to try to stem the rising water that cities in South Florida are dealing with, I think those would be things that the Biden administration would come forward with. Uh, you know, if it comes to uh, federal money for some, uh, you know, enhanced law enforcement to uh, try to blunt uh, the threat of uh, urban rioting or something like that or civil unrest, 
I think the uh, Biden administration might take a longer view of that and uh, and and question whether they want to uh, go along with Florida on that. Uh, similarly, when it comes to, uh, I think Biden would be favorable. A, a giant hole that the state is facing right now is uh, funding for Medicaid. Uh, I think that is something as well that the Biden administration would try to uh, help the states with in uh, coming months. It may be part of whatever uh, this $1.9 trillion stimulus package uh, ultimately uh, distributes to the states. But, you know, Florida in its own way could be the beneficiary of some of the, the bluer states. Uh, New York, Illinois, California may face even tougher budget situations right now. So the federal government may be looking to help those states uh, to the best they can. And Florida could be sort of the, 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 the beneficiary of some of that money that's coming, you know, scattered across all 50 states. Florida may be getting a you know, a, a better share because of the uh, overall price tag on the aid. And, and the reality is, is that Florida is still an important swing state. And so, you know, even if you, you know, don't like the governor of Florida, it doesn't make much sense to stiff the state on important projects if you want to, you know, win re-election here uh, in, in four years. So just the, the political calculations would seem to think that, you know, Florida would get its fair share, uh, but I guess we'll see how it plays out. Antonio, what kind of reaction have you heard from uh, Florida leaders to, to Biden's inauguration? Well, Zach, you know, um, as was the case last fall during the election, uh, it's been largely a partisan reaction too. Uh, Democrats are overjoyed. Republicans are, I won't say critical, but let's say muted. Uh, you know, yesterday there were key Florida Democrats who attended the inauguration, as did Republicans. It was a bipartisan affair. Uh, you know, Democrats, however, were more apt to tweet photos and congratulations and and show their portion of the the revelry that took place in the festive atmosphere uh, and what was a a more solemn ceremony given what's happened the last couple of weeks and not to mention the pandemic and the four hundred thousand dead Americans. Some glimpses I'll share. You know, Ted Deutsch, a Boca Raton Democrat, was at the Capitol. He posted photos, but it but he also wrote a long uh, social media post where he paid homage to his father, who had been a World War II combat veteran who got a Purple Heart at the Battle of the Bulge, uh, and, and others like John Lewis, uh, who uh, passed away last year, had been a key figure in the civil rights movement. Um, you know, Lois Frankel talked about turning a new leaf and the fact that, you know, that this, this that the inauguration went well, despite the fact that it was not a, a peaceful transfer of power given that what we saw the last the, on January 6th at the Capitol. And, you know, what that spoke to was, you know, the fact that it, this was more than just a change of the guard at the White House, so to speak, more than just, OK, somebody coming in, a new president with new initiatives. Um, you know, the American democracy itself was tested um, and it was tested in, in, in a really harsh way and in the front of the eyes of the country and the world. Um, you know, that's one reason, for example, you know, State Senator Lori Berman of Boynton Beach, she, she talked to us about how, you know, she had planned to attend the inauguration with her son. But because of the what happened on the Capitol and the more intense security was not able to go. And she actually spent the day working. And at one point she said that, you know, she saw the, the actual soaring in it and became emotional. And uh, State Senator Bobby Powell in the same had a similar reaction. It, it, the ceremony was he said was a feel good moment. And and that he felt like a burden had been lifted. Antonio, I was just just speaking to your point about um, 
how you know people who normally would go to this weren't able to. I, I was trying to find some people from this area who were going to just uh, you know get get uh, kind of an on the scene um, report from them and get their thoughts. And the two people that I found who had been invited, both of them said their invitations were rescinded because of the security concerns. And it just goes to show how unusual this uh, inauguration was. It, it, it really, um, they, they really kept a really tight lid on it. And uh, it was kind of shocking to see how, how much security they thought was, was needed um, after what happened. I will say this. I mean, a lot of the, uh, particularly the Democrats and the activists we talked to who, who were watching from afar on Zoom uh, or, or, or TV or whomever, however they were watching. You know, for them, this was more, again, than, like I said, a changing of a, of a presidency. Uh, many of them had participated in marches by women's advocacy groups and immigrant rights organizations and in support of gun safety measures in the early days of the Trump era. In fact, if you recall, the day after President, now former President Trump was inaugurated on January 20, 2017, that very day after there was that major women's march in, in Washington. Then after, you know, after the first year and a half or so of, of the Trump presidency, they, they started directing their efforts at voter registration and voter turnout efforts. That resulted in the 2018 blue wave midterm election that gave control of the U.S. House to Democrats. Then came this fall's election that saw uh, Biden defeat Trump, and then ultimately the early runoff elections in Georgia, early earlier this month, the runoff elections in Georgia, in which the Democrats then also took control of the U.S. Senate. So for them, it, it's not just a changing of the president. It's, it is, they saw it as a capstone, that they had made all this effort to make change in this country, political change, and, you know, and and it had and it and they had succeeded. Now for Florida Republicans, you know the day's reactions were actually more more complicated. You know they are stuck still between two realities. First, with very few exceptions, I mean maybe you know Marco Rubio and, and very few exceptions, Florida Republicans cast their lots with former President Trump's election challenge. You know they back some of these ridiculous efforts to overturn the 2020 election results, including that lawsuit by the Texas attorney general that the Supreme Court wouldn't even listen to. Um, and then they, then they opposed certification of the electoral college ballots even after the insurrection earlier that day on January 6th. And then they also opposed the second impeachment of Trump. Um, and, and, that, and that leads to the second reality is that all those efforts failed. And now they're looking at the Biden administration, a Democratic majority in the Senate, and, of course, the Democratic control of the House. So their public responses were more measured. You know, many of them did congratulate the new president and his team. They wished them well. Congressman Dia, Mario Diaz-Balart, who's a Miami Republican, issued a statement on his views of where immigration reform should go. Okay, that's constructive. Um, but I think the, the day's events were for Republicans, and the kind of the awkwardness of this was captured in the, in, the, in, in the experience of Republican Congressman Brian Mass of Stewart. Now, Mass attended the Biden soaring in ceremony. Um, interestingly, it was a decade ago that Joe Biden and Joe Biden, at that time, uh, Joe Biden was the vice president and Joe was the second lady of the United States. About a decade or so ago, the Bidens invited Brian Mast and his, his wife um, and other wounded military veterans 
to a traditional Thanksgiving dinner that the Bidens always had uh, at their residence, you know, for Thanksgiving with military veterans. Uh, Jill Biden was so, you know, spoke to Brian Mass and was so struck by his story and him as a person that she invited Brian Mass to be her guest of honor at the 2011 State of the Union address delivered by then President Barack Obama. Uh, on Tuesday, though, so we, we, you know, we thought, OK, well, let's let's reach out to Brian Mass office and our, our friends at the, in the USA Today Florida network from the, the T.C. Palm Treasure Coast newspaper news organization called, you know, reached out to Brian Mass and, you know, they, you know, get his reaction given, you know, this past, you know, encounter that they had with the Bidens. And we got they got a, a pretty terse statement that basically read, you know, he will be attending the inauguration tomorrow, but he doesn't have a relationship with Joe Biden. OK. You know, know, so I think that encapsulated the day for most Republicans. It was kind of awkward, but they were there. It was bipartisan. Uh, Hopefully it will allow the the country to heal and we can go back to fighting over policy, not fighting over the Democratic tradition. And I will say this, I'll close with one personal note. You know, as a political exile to this country, the grandson of people who fled fascism in Europe, and the son of parents who fled communism in Latin America, you know, I've never missed an inauguration. And after that in the last two weeks, I don't think I ever will. Pretty, pretty remarkable to see, um, you know, uh, somebody like Mast who, <laughs> you know, uh, had that kind of relationship and, and how that has changed in the in the Trump era. Uh, I guess it's hard to um, kind of move on and, and turn the page and, uh, um, you know, kind of fully um you know, both sides are, are pretty dug in here. And even though there's a lot of calls for unity, the incentives for unity among the base of both parties uh, are, are not uh, always um, that great to, to get politicians to, to get on board with some of um, those ideas. Well, as the Biden presidency was kicking off, Trump was beginning his post-presidential life in Florida. Trump flew to Palm Beach, where he is expected to live full-time at his estate in Mar-a-Lago. There's a lot to discuss with Trump's next act in Florida, but let's start with what the last day of his presidency was like. Your team covered his arrival in Palm Beach. What was the scene like? Let's roll back the clock a little bit on that. Um, The day really started with a very curious reference to Florida in the outgoing president's 10-minute, uh, what amounted to a 10-minute second farewell address that took place uh, that Wednesday morning at Joint Base Andrews. Uh, is Precisely, he said uh, he and his family wouldn't be sitting, uh, quote-unquote, sitting in Florida, regretting or hand-wringing about what they could have done or could have worked harder at. Uh, then they flew down to Palm Beach one last time on Air Force One, a flight that gave First Lady Melania Trump time for a wardrobe change into a kind of a psychedelic fashion statement. And then when they arrived in, in Palm Beach County, uh, we, it was uh, the scene as we usually saw it. You know, the, the motorcade route along Southern Boulevard was dotted and packed with, you know, what appeared to be you know, really hundreds of supporters along the route. Now some background. You know, President Trump has flown into Palm Beach International Airport 34 times uh, during his presidency. Each time, the scene has been more or less the same. You know, fans and foes lined Southern Boulevard. They carry signs, they wave flags, they cheer or jeer as the motorcade goes by. But this time, it was an overwhelmingly pro-Trump crowd. The, 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 the foes were probably watching the inauguration ceremonies on TV. So the Trumpers, the, the Trump crowd, had the boulevard to themselves, along with an international media contingent. I mean, there were reporters there from Japan and all parts of the world catching this last glimpse of 
of President Trump headed as president headed to Mar-a-Lago. But the mood, I have to tell you, was very different. In the past, it was overwhelmingly festive for the most part. You know, lots of red, white, and blue apparel, glittering hats, flags, music blaring, you know, signs. Um, you know, I, I, we have always been in the White House press pool when the president has been in town. And, you know, we would drive by in the vans and, we you know, the vans are, say, media on it or press. And people give you the thumbs down or they kind of boo at you. All right. You know, look, that's, that's, that's fine. That's part of the atmosphere. Uh, this time, you know, there was a lot of tension in the air. Um, and, you know, there, was a, there were a number of flags with profanities on them. T-shirts emblazoned with profanities. Uh, the theme was F Biden. You'll, I'll let you figure it out. Um, there were also many flashpoints of anger. You know, one of our reporters was verbally assaulted. Other members of the media did get berated. Uh, there was a, a Trump-supporting Republican who had the apparent audacity to say that he believed the GOP needed to unite for a comeback. He was run off by an enraged group of Trumpers who refused to hear such blasphemy. Um, again, there, there were a lot of other folks that were doing this, you know, the usual just cheering. They were there to thank the president. They were there to cheer him on. Uh, they were peaceful. They were festive. But it did have this tone at, at different points of real anger and, and bitterness and resentment. And that's something to that extent we, we really had never seen before on Southern Boulevard. And, and that also speaks, I think, to a, a division even within Trump Nation. You know, we wrote about this over the over the weekend. Yes, lots of of Trump Supporters are diehards. They're going to be there for him no matter what. But others told us that they were kind of reappraising what's next. One told us she doesn't know if she will remain active in attending rallies. Another told us she was changing the name of and mission of her organization to focus on lobbying and pressing Republicans to embrace conservative policies. And another uh, one who was actually one of the original Tea Party activists in Palm Beach County said he's just retiring. And, and he issued this half warning, half advice to his compatriots, which is reach out to younger voters, reach out to younger people. So it is a time here in Palm Beach County, the, the home of Mar-a-Lago, uh, among the Trump base, it is a time of reflection, a time of farewells, but also a time of brainstorming about what's next and where to go to go go with in this movement. So a bit of a, uh, an angry end there. Uh, people are not too happy to see uh, how this uh, presidency is coming to an end. Uh, what, what do you think uh, of his post-presidency here in Florida, Antonio? I mean, it's, it sounds like he's going to make Mar-a-Lago uh, his permanent home uh, for now and, and uh, you know, be a full-time Florida resident. I mean, uh, there's talk of maybe his daughter Ivanka running for the U.S. Senate, of him trying to launch some new business ventures, maybe even using the state to mount a political uh, comeback. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on kind of uh, what his presence in the state will, will mean for state politics and, and what his post-presidency might look like. Well, you know, as, as I've said before, I, I think we're going to continue to be busy covering him here, um, just like uh, the, the Trump base is, is reflecting and, you know, and brainstorming, uh, so are we. And I, I think there are three areas where we will be keeping an eye on. One is business. Even before, I, I should let our listeners know that even before Donald Trump entered the political arena, uh, the Palm Beach Post and the Palm Beach Daily News has been covering him here for about almost 30 years. Why? Because of his business interests. Uh, Trump owns major business in our region. Mar-a-Lago is one of them. He's got two golf clubs in Palm Beach County. He's got another golf club down in Miami. And we, like I said, we, from a business perspective, we have been covering those businesses forever. 
um, it seems. Now, though, in the post-presidency era, we're going to be looking at key questions. Do the businesses profit from people wanting access to a former president? Remember, he, he still, as of now, still gets intelligence briefings. He is in the know about world events. So there are people, you know, perhaps in business with, you know, with global interests who may see a great value in buying memberships to these golf clubs for potentially, potentially getting access to him. And that may well be the worth the cost of the memberships. Or perhaps, as we have reported, he has bec- he is damaged. He, he, he is a pariah of sorts, even on the island of Palm Beach. And maybe his businesses will suffer. Uh, we also know that he owes hundreds of millions of dollars to financial institutions, given the reporting that the New York Times and others have done. How does that play out? And then you got Mar-a-Lago, the former Southern White House. You know, this is a club that was before Trump entered politics. This was a club that was a very important player in the social season of the island. They were the billionaires that would get together and they would have this social season circuit of philanthropic and charity galas. You know, now, now Mar-a-Lago has transitioned to a more political fundraising organization. So we're going to want to know who's going there. You know, who are the political players and the political organizations that are going there are at Mar-a-Lago? And, you know, and where's their future at? Um, then, of course, there's a speculation that you just mentioned that, you know, the, the ex-president could start a media empire to rival Fox News, who he was badgering on a frequent basis on Twitter before he was banned or maybe even a digital platform, sort of like his own Twitter. Given his banishment from social media right now, you have to think that that is a major priority, as without an online megaphone, his political reach is is severely constrained. Uh, Another area we're going to be looking at, as you mentioned, Zach, is his political might. You know, he is, Trump is the first president to leave under impeachment. It would appear on the surface that his political brand got torpedoed, but he remains extremely popular with Republicans in Florida. So will Trump be a kingmaker? One political analyst told me this week, uh, we will find out very soon, because if anyone's going to primary U.S. Senator Marco Rubio for the 2022 race, as has been speculated, uh, that person will have to start laying the groundwork very soon to build an organization, start raising money and get ready to to challenge Rubio. What about Governor DeSantis? You know, as John just mentioned, he he has fully embraced Trump and DeSantis will need Trump in his corner to win re-election next year. And then the third area we're going to look at, uh, gentlemen, is is far right extremism, you know, extremism, you know, Palm Beach County, where we are, looks like it's becoming a magnet for some of these far right groups. Uh, that's a trend we've been seeing. If remember, far right activist Laura Loomer won the GOP nomination for a congressional seat here. The Proud Boys have been seen have been big in this state. Will that trend continue? And, and what kind of security or public safety threats would, would it pose? But right now, more than anything, we are guessing about what's next. And as I said, Trump has been kicked off his social media platforms. They've taken away his bully pulpit. So we're in the dark. Uh, this morning, one of our reporters actually got up and drove out to his preferred golf club to see if he was there. We have no way of knowing where he is and what he's doing, but I think we'll be hearing from him soon, one way or the other. As he said Wednesday morning, he won't be sitting around in Florida. John, uh, GOP strategist Rick Wilson, who is a, a Florida man, recently called Florida the Trumpiest of states. You, you have top state leaders like Ron DeSantis, Rick Scott. Uh, Congressman Matt Gates, they're all ardent Trump supporters. And the president really does still enjoy a pretty substantial support among uh, his base in a state that he carried by 
uh, three times the margin that he did in 2016. Is this a good place for Trump to sort of regroup and plot whatever comes next? Oh, it sure is. Uh, you know, you're right that Florida is home to some of Trump's most loyal followers. And, uh, you know, now he's here, too. So uh, I, I think, though, things could get awkward as the months go on for Trump in this kind of Mar-a-Lago uh, exile. Uh, clearly, he considers himself still relevant and uh, supporters like DeSantis, Gates, uh, Rick Scott, Marco Rubio, and, uh, you know, don't forget Pam Bondi, the former attorney general who became a Trump team player. Uh, all of them gave Trump uh, unswerving loyalty well into the baseless claims uh, election overtime that he tried to create that, uh, of course, culminated in the January 6th mob attack on the uh, U.S. Capitol. But uh, Trump looming in future months and years as a kind of kingmaker, though, may not really sit well with these Florida Republicans as time unfurls. Uh, DeSantis, Rubio, and Scott are considered very possible presidential candidates in four years. So they have their own political paths that they need to spend some time clearing. And, uh, you know, Rubio, as as Antonio just pointed out, Rubio may even become a Trump target, may, may be getting a primary challenger from daughter Ivanka Trump next year, if you really want to go all in on speculation right now. Uh, a a Rubio-Ivanka Trump matchup would be an early test of the resilience of the Trump brand in this state. Uh, at this point, I imagine it's also something that Rubio is probably losing a little bit of sleep over, but maybe not a whole lot yet. Uh, but I think it's it's very likely that events could overtake Trump as the months roll on. Uh, Republicans will find other issues to uh, duel with Biden and Democrats on. And if uh, Biden meets any success with uh, stabilizing the pandemic and the economy, uh, politicians bond with the Trump days is going to become less and less appealing for voters, uh, even in Florida. I, I, I guess I'm really wondering, are people going to remember fondly, you know, the, the good old days of Trump and want even a semblance of it back? I think we're seeing how a lot of people, not just Democrats, are feeling a weight lifted with the uh, end of the Trump administration. I think the Republican Party may be ready to find something, uh, some new way forward, uh, organized as a, you know, what it, maybe it always has been, a fiscally conservative, uh, America first, business allied, religious leaning, uh, kind of ethnically monolithic organization. Uh, that sees a, a diminishing influence from the Trump base, uh, but somehow can still be a you know very active and bona fide player in American politics. Uh, so you know maybe Florida is a good petri dish for watching that if it emerges. Yeah, it's a good point though, John. I mean, Trump looms so large in sort of America's psyche right now. We're all so used to uh, him dominating uh, the conversation, the, the national conversation at all levels, but. Things move quickly. The news cycle moves quickly. People move on. And and who knows uh, how much he'll uh, continue to uh, enjoy that kind of, um, you know, uh, status uh, in terms of uh, national politics. Although I, I still think he's sort of the leading voice in the in the GOP. Um, and, and so uh, I think that, uh, you know, even though he's he's off Twitter for now, I would I would be surprised if he doesn't find um, some way to, to be heard and stay relevant. Uh, we'll go on to our, our numbers here. Antonio, you had 26,235. Tell us about that. Yes, gentlemen, that is the number of tweets that former President Trump issued between January 20th, 2017, the day that he was, they took the oath of office, and January 8th, 
2021, with the day that he was effectively banned from Twitter. Now, Trump tweeted about everything you can imagine. He tweeted about healthcare policy. He tweeted about his love letters with North Korea's leader. He tweeted about Roseanne Barr's TV ratings. He tweeted about Wall Street records. He tweeted about even NFL's protesting on the sidelines. You know, I cannot think of one aspect of American political, social, cultural, business life that the president didn't tweet about. Oh, wait, you know what? There is one thing he never tweeted about, a presidential library. Nope, not one tweet about how amazing or big or huge or great his presidential library would be. Not one. And now that he's off Twitter and is an ex-president, there's no way to hear about potential plans for such a facility. Um, In part, though, look, it's because he did not want to be an ex-president in the first place. And anything that dealt with not being president right now was a taboo topic in the post-election White House. So I will speculate. Look, a president of Trump presidential library makes sense here in Florida. You know, he this is where he is a, a resident. He is popular here, especially with Republicans. It's a big tourism state. Prior to the pandemic, you know, we were getting 130 million visitors a year. Uh, so this would be a, a place to put close to him, to put his presidential library and almost guarantee that it would be a place that would get a lot of foot traffic. Now, there's an issue here because I, had, I actually talked about this with uh, last month with uh, presidential historian Robert Watson at Lynn University. And, and Dr. Watson is someone who has been on, is, is on the foundation at the uh, Truman Little White House in Key West. He, he's organized programs there. He's been involved with the Harry S. Truman Presidential Library. So he's somebody who's very familiar with the process of a presidential library and everything that it encompasses. For example, the relationship with the National Archives and Records Administration, you know, to to tell the story of a presidency, you know, research to create ways, you know, the the guidelines for historians to do research of presidential libraries. And like I said, you know, and, and the narrative of the library itself. Now, what Dr. Watson was telling me is that if you think the Trump presidency was a tumultuous affair, uh, he's betting that how the story of the Trump presidency is told will also have its share of controversy, because as he said, you know, it's you know it's going to be a fight between telling the the true story of the presidential library and, of course, the alternative fact story of the Trump presidency. So uh, it's we've not, we have no idea of when this Trump presidential library will be built or when or if, but. That's put that on our list of, of to do's here. Yeah. And I think uh, if there is a, a library, having it in that Palm Beach area seems like the natural spot. So I'm sure you guys will be occupied with uh, speculation on that uh, for well, years I, I, to come. I will say <laughs> that, you know, the property where the Palm Beach Post is being redeveloped, we have a large lot. So we got space. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the irony of that, if the Trump Library went into a, a, a temple of the news media, uh, John, you had uh, 481. Tell us about that. Yeah, Zach, uh, 481 are the uh, number of miles that U.S. Highway 27 spans in Florida, from the Miami area to the Georgia border, just north of Tallahassee. And if State Rep. Anthony Sabatini, a Howie in the Hills Republican, has his way, U.S. 27 in Florida and all those 481 miles will become known as, wait for it, the Donald J. Trump Highway. 
Sabatini is all in on Trump. And, uh, you know, all you got to do is look at his Twitter feed to learn that. He also helped uh, represent people filing lawsuits against local mask ordinances. So uh, he's a true believer. And uh, like a lot of anti-mask people, uh, he recently mentioned that he had a quarantine because he'd been exposed to uh, COVID-19. But in the uh, week that Trump hit the road, uh, Sabatini got some attention for saying he'll try to have 27 designated for Trump. To do that, he'll evidently have to take late senator and congressman Claude Pepper's name off the road because the legislature uh, designated the road the Claude Pepper Memorial Highway. 20 years ago. Pepper was a Democrat and his uh, reputation endures as one of the most ardent advocates for seniors and uh, their issues in this country. But uh, yeah, it's kind of at this point, hard to imagine Trump replacing Pepper. But, uh, you know, maybe the times are changing. This is a Republican controlled legislature, after all, where uh, Florida's turnpike was designated the Ronald Reagan turnpike the same year Pepper got 27. And uh, I guess history also shows how fickle naming can be. U.S. 27 in Florida was originally designated the Thomas E. Will Memorial Highway. That was in 1937. I, I, I can hear both Zach and Antonio thinking, who was Tom Will? Well, he's known as the founder of the no longer existing community of Okilanta in Palm Beach County. Uh, Will was a farmer and a developer who had pushed for 20 years to have a road built connecting Miami with the area just south of Lake Okeechobee. But, uh, you know, eventually Will lost out to Claude Pepper years later. So, you know, for Sabatini, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. Are you guys ready for this? Where there was Will, there will be Trump. Once again, John goes deep into the history books to shame us all. <laughs> I worked on that. Well done. Well done. Well, my number is 98. This week, Florida Congressman and prominent Trump supporter Matt Gates tweeted that 98% of Floridians don't know who state Senate President Wilton Simpson is. Why was Gates jabbing at Simpson? Because Simpson is rumored to want to run for agriculture commissioner in 2022. And Gates said this week that he also may seek the ag commissioner job, making Simpson a rival if he chooses to run. Gates uh, teasing an agriculture commissioner run is one of the bigger developments of the emerging uh, 2020 camp, 2022 campaign. Uh, Gates being a MAGA superstar would be a formidable opponent in a primary, especially with Donald Trump in the state full time cheering him on from the sidelines. Gates might have a harder time in the general election as as sort of a not sort of a, a really a highly polarizing figure. But if he wins ag commissioner, that's been a stepping stone in the past to, to running for governor, Adam Putnam who uh, was defeated by uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in the primary in 2018, was ag commissioner before he ran. Uh, Gates, he's about as ambitious as they come, and he's also about as Trump-friendly as they come. Uh, so that he, uh, the fact that he has his eyes set on statewide office uh, shows how Trump's influence, I think, could continue to live on beyond his term in the White House here in Florida uh, and beyond. That wraps up another episode of Inside Florida Politics. I want to thank our audio production guru, Thomas Cordy. And thanks to all of you for listening. Stay safe. We're out of here.